So there are, of course, many drawbacks and, and challenges to meeting together and, and worshiping together in this online forum. It's not the same as, as being together, as we have repeatedly said in many different ways. But there are also some opportunities and some advantages to meeting in this way. And one of those is that people who are not geographically close to temple in, in any way can join us for worship and, and can be together with us on Sunday mornings. And this morning, it even provides us with the opportunity to have a lesson presented all the way from Memphis, Tennessee. And we're grateful that Michael Van Heis has prepared a lesson for us this morning. Michael was the interim minister here at the Vine for a while and remains a great friend of ours, and it has been a joy of mine as, as part of, of our time at the Vine to, to get to know Michael and to get to know his heart for, for Scripture and for God and for the church. I think you'll be blessed by what Michael has to share with us today and by the unique perspective that he brings to Scripture and to some of the current conversations and, and topics in our world today. So, thank you, Michael, and I hope that everyone is, is blessed by what he has to share with us today. Good morning, Vine family. It's so great to be with you in this virtual space. I hope you all are doing well, and I think and pray for you daily. Uh, I want, want to say real quick, uh, I'm very thankful that Warren uh, has uh, lent me uh, the pulpit for today. I'm very appreciative of that. I want to say congrats to him and Ashley. Uh, I, hope, I seriously hope you all are well during this strange time. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 77 this morning. And before I begin, uh, let's, let's pray. May what I say be in God's name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I cry out loud to God. Out loud to God so that He can hear me. During the day when I'm in trouble, I look for my Lord. At night, my hands are still outstretched and don't grow numb. My whole being refuses to be comforted. I remember God and I moan. I complain and my spirit grows tired. You've kept my eyelids from closing. I'm so upset I can't even speak. I think about days long past. I remember years that seem an eternity in the past. I meditate with my heart at night. I complain and my spirit keeps searching. Will my Lord Reject me forever. Will he never be pleased again? Rejection is the worst. Most of us have dealt with the heavy sorrow that comes with rejection, especially when it comes to being re rejected romantically. I remember the first time my love was rejected. I was in the fifth grade. My family just came home from eating dinner. And right before I went upstairs to my room, I noticed a number one blinking on the home answering machine. So I pressed play, and it happened to be my girlfriend, Kinsley, 
who told me and my parents who were still in the kitchen listening that she just wanted to be friends. I still remembered the look of pity my mom gave me as I ran into the family room, tears running down my face, as I put the boy band O-Town into the CD player and put their hit song All or Nothing on repeat as I embraced this reality of singleness again. Rejection is the worst. Right after I left Abilene Christian University, I was interviewing for full-time ministry positions all throughout the country, and I became one of the finalists with this little church in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. As one of their final candidates, they brought me in for the weekend for a face-to-face interview, and not to brag on myself, but I nailed it. I led a great discussion in class, I connected with the students, and to put a cherry on top, I even showed them my preaching chops, because who doesn't want a youth minister who could also preach? I felt like I was consistently hitting home runs. And this feeling was confirmed even further after being peppered with compliments from the congregations who were giving me endless praise, some on the search committee even coming up to me and saying to my face, we should just hire you right now, or we have our next minister. So you can imagine how devastating it was to receive a call a few weeks later saying that they are offering the position to the other guy. Rejection is the worst. And while rejection is the worst, the kind of rejection the psalmist is experiencing isn't rejection from romance or rejection from an employer. It is rejection from the God of Israel. No, 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 no. God doesn't reject Anyone? Remember what he declared to Moses on Mount Sinai? The Lord, the Lord, a God who is compassionate and merciful, very patient, full of great loyalty and faithfulness. It is precisely because God had declared himself to be full of compassion and mercy that the author's experience of Divine rejection renders him sleepless as his whole being refuses to reach a state of rest. The author's experience of divine rejection is not aligning with the teachings he's received about God. And whenever our experiences with the Lord aren't aligning with the truths or teachings about God that were passed down to us, one is left with this unsettling feeling of uncertainty and a haunting question that renders us sleepless. Why? The why leads the psalmist to raise even more questions. As one scholar puts, these questions are almost tantamount to blasphemy. As he wonders aloud, has God's faithful love come to a complete end? Is his promise over for future generations? Has God forgotten how to be gracious? Has he angrily stopped up his compassion? It's my misfortune, I thought, 
that the wrong, that the strong hand of the Most High is different now. Psalm 77 is a fitting lament for people of color. After the 2015 shooting at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, author and poet Claudia Rankin recalls asking her friend about being a mom of a black son, and her response is haunting. The condition of black life is one of mourning, she said bluntly. For her, mourning lives in real time inside her and her son's reality. At any moment, she might lose her reason for living. Though, through, though the white liberal imagination likes to feel temporarily bad about black suffering, there really is no mode of empathy that can replicate the daily strain of knowing that as a black person, you can be killed simply, simply for being black. No hands in your pocket, no playing music, no sudden movements, no driving your car, no walking at night, no walking in the day, no turning onto this street, no entering into this building, no standing your ground, no standing here, no standing there, no talking back, no playing with to toy guns, no living while black. Psalm 77 is a fitting lament for people of color. You know, when we all began learning about the lynchings of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, I spent several nights processing this racial trauma from these tragedies with people of color from my church here in Memphis. You know, it's, it is so critical for churches to have or to be a safe place for people of color to talk about our woundedness and to give ourselves a place where we can share our pain, our sorrow, our trauma with each other and our white allies. And one of the common themes that continues to emerge in processing my own experience of racism with the racism that's experienced with African Americans is that the sin of racism is a wound that will never fully heal. It's like a band-aid that's consistently ripped off a deep cut that can never fully turn to a scab. Psalm 77. It's a fitting lament for people of color. And if I could summarize our sorrow, if I could summarize our cries, our questions, our uncertainties, and our pain, it would sound a lot like this. Lord, our lived experience is telling us that your love has stopped short for people of color. Our experience is telling us that your promises have only extended to our brothers and sisters with lighter skin. I mean... Were promises meant for us? Were we really included in your plan? If so, have they expired? Where is your graciousness whenever we have to defend our lived experience to our skeptical white brothers and sisters who accuse us of being too sensitive about race? Where is your compassion and mercy when so many black bodies are being publicly and privately lynched? The very bodies that are allegedly made 
in your indelible image. Has your unchanging nature changed? I mean, what kind of God are you? You know, whenever I hear the song that tells me about how great you are, whenever I hear the song that talks about your reckless love, I just want to grow. Now, I would imagine that many of you are ready for me to move on to the triumphal part of the sermon, right? I get it, Michael. We are all terrible. Now, just get to the part where you talk about how God loves us and forgives us. And if you happen to be thinking like that, then perhaps you grew up in a church that was similar to my own, where Christianity is misrepresented as only triumphalist. Do you remember the worship you grew up with? I mean, did it sound like Psalm 77? Probably not. I mean, not least not for me. I grew up with worship sermons and teachings that primarily, if not only, declared victory in Jesus. I would imagine that many of you who grew up in a church similar to my own had the same message. You know, much of my adolescence years as a transnational Asian American adoptee were spent at East Springer Church of Christ, a 700-member congregation that was primarily white, middle to upper social economic class in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And if I could describe all the songs and prayers and sermons I heard at East Brainerd, it would be one word, triumphalism. You see, part of the reason why Psalm 77 makes us squirm in our seats is because we were not given the kind of vocabulary vocabulary or language for those moments in our lives when our experience, when our experiences of faith were in misalignment with the teachings we've received about our faith. I mean, has your experience of God ever clashed with the teachings you've received about God? You know, Kate Baller thought that her experience with God aligned with the teachings she's received about God until she reached her own point of disorientation. Kate, a recent graduate from Duke Divinity School, freshly married, with a dissertation under her belt, and a healthy boy. She just got a job at her alma mater. God was surely making his will known in her life. Her experience with God was aligning quite nicely with the teachings she received. Well, that is until she was diagnosed in 2015 with incurable, metastasized stage four colon cancer. You know, in her memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason, and Other Lies I've Loved, an amazing title for a book, she notes how comfortable, uncomfortable we are as Christians to embrace sadness, both our own sadness and the sadness of others, which is really weird because, as she says, the church is historically wonderful at teaching people how to be sad because, as it turns out, our lived experiences are not always ones that speak of the resurrection. Instead, our experiences are like a disorienting roller coaster full of questions and uncertainty that has no end in sight. 
And see, the last thing we want to do is vocalize our questions and certain and our uncertainties out loud. They're too unsettling for us. But the question still remains, so what are we going to do about it? Well, perhaps we'll just ignore it. It'll eventually go away. I mean, the last thing we would ever want to do is bring our uncertainties to church, right? I mean, we don't go to church to claim our doubts or to relish in our sadness. That's a bad marketing strategy. We want to leave church thinking about heaven, not about the unsettling questions that are keeping us up at night, those questions that are residing within the very depths of our souls. However, not being able to raise questions, not able not being able to raise our complaints, our sorrows about God with the people of God seems so weird, especially when you consider that the very text we base our lives around reflects the common, this common human existential crisis. In fact, did you know that lament makes up about 40% of the Psalms? Not to mention the Book of Lamentations, we have a whole text in the Hebrew Bible that testifies to whenever our human experiences with God are clashing with the teachings we received about God. You know, one evangelical scholar, Dr. Sun Chan Ra, comments on this saying that the church tends to avoid lament because lament requires that we acknowledge not only our own suffering, but also acknowledge the suffering of other people. And in this sense, the lack of lament in our churches has resulted in us having severe dimension to the su suffering of every person of color who is wounded by the sin of racism. We are witnessing this as it particularly relates to the African-American community. Dr. Ra writes... Absence does not make the heart grow fonder. Absence makes the heart forget. We forget the necessity of lamenting over suffering and pain. We forget the reality of suffering and pain. And a culture of American triumphalism that avoids lament results in, in amnesia about a tainted history. The reality of a shameful history undermines the story of exceptionalism. Therefore, the shameful history must remain hidden. True reconciliation, justice, and shalom require a remembering of suffering, an unearthing of a shameful history, and a willingness to enter into the lives of people who don't look like us. I guess what I've been trying to say this morning, church, is that lament must become part of the church's way of life. We need to breathe our hyperventilating breath of lament into our suffocating lungs of triumph. For lament is the most genuine expression the church can offer to a world that is literally burning on fire. Lament is this authentic expression and perhaps testimony of what it means to live the Christian life in a world that is riddled with chaos and pandemics, systemic racism, and political division. 
The church should be a place where we can freely express our sorrow, our uncertainties, and our doubts about God who is full of compassion and mercy. The church needs to be a safe place where we can just say, look, I know these are the truths I received about God growing up, but let me tell you, my experience is not bearing witness to that. And I don't know how to make sense of it other than to bring it before my community and before our God together. To be clear, this isn't to say that the truths that we have received about God are false. It's just to say that at this moment in our life, we just don't know how to make sense of it. See, lament is our honest witness to the world that we don't have all the answers. We don't know why there is so much pervasive evil in our world. We don't know why there's so much pain and suffering in light of believing in the God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. But when we are able to freely express these doubts, these com- when we are freely able to express our complaints, our uncertainties about God to God with the people of God, then we are enabled to recall how the God of Israel has saved his people. Just look at the pivot the psalmist takes in verse 11. He writes, But I will remember the Lord's deeds. Yes, I will remember your wondrous acts from times long past. I will meditate on all your works. I will ponder your deeds. God, your way is holiness. Who is as great of God as you? You are the God who works wonders. You have demonstrated your strength among all people. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people redeemed the children of Jacob and Joseph. What is interesting here about the psalmist pivot is how quickly he goes from complaint to recollection. Notice that none of his problems are resolved, at least in the way he probably wants them to be. God still hasn't entered into the picture, at least not actively. You see, lament is not a condition where we become paralyzed by our sadness, our grief, or our disorienting experiences. Lament allows us to live more fully into the hope we have in Jesus Christ. See, by airing out his grief, his complaints, his sorrow, the psalmist is able to remember how God saved his people in history. And by lamenting his disorienting rejection from God, the psalmist is able to recall the stories that he does know about God. And by recalling the stories about God that he knows, he's able to recall God's greatness. He's able to recall God's holiness. He is able to recall his living hope. And recalling our living hope does not mean that our grief or our complaints, our doubts just go away. Instead, recalling our living hope fixates us upon not only what we can look forward to, but clarifies our job as it relates to suffering of other people in our lives, in our church, and in our world right now. 
Hope is not passive, nor is hope apathetic. Hope is never satisfied with how things are. As Dr. James Cone writes, if contemplation about the future distorts present reality of injustice and reconciles the oppressed to unjust treatment committed against them, then it is unchristian and has nothing to do whatsoever with the Christ who came to liberate us. It is this that renders white talk about heaven and life after death fruitless for blacks. We know all about the pearly gates, the golden streets, and long white robes. We have sung songs about heaven until we were hoarse, but it did not change the present state or ease the pain. To be sure, we may walk in Jerusalem just like John, and there may be a great camp meeting in the promised land, but we want to walk in this land, the land of the free and the home of the brave. We want to know why Harlem cannot become Jerusalem and Chicago, the promised land. What good are golden crowns, slippers, and white robes, or even life, if it means that we have to turn our backs on the pain and suffering of our own children? Church, lament leads us, always leads us to our living hope. It always leads us to a living hope that is active and embodied by the people of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we live out this, our living hope, we are attuned, our awareness is widened to our world, and it gives us this impetus to bring God's kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven. It's time for us to write some new worship songs, my friends. For when we do that, when we are able to sing the song of lament, we'll be enabled to become more like our living hope. Let's pray. Holy God, as the seasons turn, creation reminds us that our lives undergo various changes. Seasons of grief, seasons of uncertainty, seasons of chaos and blessing, seasons of renewal. Make us good students of these rhythms. Enable us to dwell in each one of them with full presence. May you empower us with the spirit not to hurry the work of grief or uncertainty open us to receive the gifts of your redemption and holiness in all things. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We confess to each other and to you, our Creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear, Hear us, us, forgive, forgive us, us, renew our resolve to build the, the kingdom, kingdom of Christ. Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable or paths of self-centeredness. Hear, Hear us, us, forgive, forgive us, us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom, kingdom of righteousness. righteousness. 
We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. Amen.